0: Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. All right, Genesis 21. How's everybody doing this morning? Everybody doing all right? Yeah. It's been a little chaotic, so I apologize for that, but here we are, Genesis 21. So if you ever get into biblical studies, one of the key questions people like to ask is how did the Bible come together, right? That's a pretty reasonable question. One thing we know for sure is the Bible did not fall from the sky whole, right? Like that's one thing that's like pretty clear, but instead it comes from different sources and different authors spread out over different times and locations spread out over long periods of time in all sorts of different contexts. But if you want to vastly oversimplify the version of this story, I'm going to give it to you this morning. So somewhere around 1800 BC, some vague notion of the people of Israel begins to exist with this guy. We've been talking a lot about him. That is a very grumpy icon of Abraham up there. I don't know why he's so grumpy. Um, There's nothing in Genesis that makes him particularly grumpy, right? But uh, for some reason, his iconic version is... But from Abraham on, people told stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? These stories of the patriarchs, the people who founded the people of Israel. And then over time, the priesthood developed, and with it, the Levitical law and the stories of the Exodus, and then the histories of the judges and the kings. And then there's writings like Job, right, that are kind of timeless. They don't actually sit in a particular time and place, but are just kind of about any time. And then, uh, and throughout the history of the people, there were the prophets who left behind oracles and prophecies. And then, in 586 B.C., something deeply traumatic happens. Anybody know what happens in 586 B.C.? Yeah. Jerusalem is destroyed, the nation of Judah is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, and the people of Israel are sent into exile and into the land of Babylon. When they get there, it creates this deep existential crisis, right? We are the, we're supposed to be the people of God, and what are we doing in exile? How does this whole thing work together? And who is God? And who are we? And what does all this story mean? And they went back and they looked at all these stories that they had, and all this history, and oral, oral traditions that existed. And the scribes began to sew them together into this deeper understanding of who they are and who they were called to be in the world. And they sewed it up together into one unified book, which is what we still have today, which is what we generally refer to as the Old Testament. So if you want an extremely, uh, extremely oversimplified version of the events, it kind of looks like this. Okay, there's Babylon, and then keep going, Kyle. 1800 to 500 B.C., oral, Israel's oral and history, written history emerges. 586 B.C., Babylon destroys Jerusalem. And 500 B.C., scribes sew so together these sources into the Old Testament as we know it. Now again, this is very oversimplified. If you report me to my Old Testament seminary professor, I'd get in trouble for like cutting a, a tremendous amount of quarters. But for our purposes today, it kind of gives you a sense of what happened here. And like all scholarship on ancient history, there's a little bit of guessing involved and we might find out we're wrong as we get more evidence going forward. But nonetheless, one of the funny byproducts of this editorial process, there's a point to all this, I swear, we are coming back around to Genesis 21, is that if you read the Old Testament, you often have duplicate stories. Have you guys seen this? Have you actually, you know, if you actually read Genesis beginning to end, you start to see like, didn't I already read that story? So for example, how many creation stories do we have in Genesis? Two, yeah. Genesis one and Genesis two are two different stories. They don't contradict each other, but they're told from different perspectives and address different things. We have two stories of Noah gathering up the animals. One in which he collects two of every species and one in which he collects seven. We have several versions of Abraham receiving his calling. We've seen that in our series on Abraham. We have multiple versions of how Esau got his name. And we have more than one version of how the well of Beersheba was named, which I know you're all super interested in. Where did that well get its name? (laughs) And this is both super cool and super weird, right? But if you believe the scribes knew what they were doing, and that the living God had a hand in it, and the whole process is inspired, it's not a problem. The stories are written from different perspectives for different purposes in order to answer different questions. And if you let them bounce off each other, rather than trying to make one cancel out the other, it can actually do some pretty cool stuff. It can actually enhance both of the stories. And we've been trying to fix this for a long time. And if you've ever taken an apologetics class, you probably know that process. But apparently it wasn't a problem for the scribes. They didn't try and edit out one story for the other and try and smush them together. They left them both in. And as a result, the Old Testament is never a solo. It's always a chorus. And it has these times, right, where all the sounds kind of perfectly blend together. And then these other times when the, part, the, the different voices kind of stress and strain against each other. And that's what makes a chorus good, right? A chorus has to actually do some of both. I'm not a musician, but I I think that's how it works, right? Like Like it needs both. Times when everything blends and times when everything stresses. And if we don't try and fix it, but just kind of let these things bounce off each other, it actually creates the beauty of a choir. And the whole thing actually kind of works together. And this is a long way of saying that we have one of those duplicate stories this morning. If you heard Kyle read that passage and say, Didn't we do this already? The simple answer is yes, we did read this particular passage at fourth Sunday, two weeks ago. But all the, all the way back in June, we also looked at Genesis 18. And if you read, if you were here for that, what happens in Genesis 18 is three divine visitors come to visit Abraham and they ask him, this is Genesis 18, verses 9 to 15. They say, Where is your wife, Sarah? That the angels asked him. And Abraham says, They're in the tent. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to it the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Which feels like a very abrupt end to that story. I've never quite (laughs) known what to do with that conclusion. Yes, you did. (laughs) That's the conclusion. <laughs> so in this passage, right, Sarah's told she'll have a child. The one thing she has longed for and hoped for forever, right? The one prayer God's never answered. The one promise that God has failed to keep. This deep wound in her soul. Sarah's not only been waiting for this her whole life, but for 24 years at this point, her and Abraham have been wandering around the land, traveling in the land, not receiving this child that has been promised to them. And so when she hears it, she laughs. This is not the laughter of joy, right? What kind of laughter is this? Skepticism. Skepticism, yeah. Of incredulity probably do more synonyms there of cynicism of doubt right this is the laughter of like okay god sure if you say so i've waited 24 years I mean so i mean you say this but but like sure okay sure god i'm sure you will do it when pigs fly and gravity ends and impossible things happen right sarah laughs can you relate to that sort of laughter you ever had that moment? Okay, God. Sure. I'll believe it when I see it. And this is how Isaac gets his name. Isaac literally means he laughs. So this is our first story. And then we travel a little bit. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. We have the incident with Abimelech. And then we come to our passage for today. Genesis 21, and I'm going to read it again. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. And at the very time God had promised him, Abraham gave the name Isaac to his son Sarah bore him. And when his son Isaac was eight years old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? So finally in Genesis 21, Isaac is born. And after a lifetime of waiting, Sarah receives a child. And when she finally receives the child, how does she respond? Does to say she never how does she respond? What does it literally say that she does? She laughs. Right? She laughs again. God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. There are repeat stories, right? They tell of Sarah laughing and Isaac getting his name. But is this the same laughter as before? Now, this is a very different laughter, right? We have traveled from the laughter of defeat, of disappointment, of incredulity, to the laughter of joy, to the laughter of can you believe it? Can you believe that this thing has possibly come to be? It's the laughter of being overwhelmed with news that you couldn't possibly imagine would ever actually happen. Of receiving the promise of hope that you've long since given up on. And if you take these two Sarah stories and let one negate the other or smush them together, you lose something. I want us to hold them both in our minds. And this is the, the title for my sermon this morning. If you have it there, Kyle. One more. From laughter to laughter. Sarah moves from laughter to laughter. God brings Sarah from laughter to laughter. From the laughter of pain and sorrow and cynicism to the laughter of joy and delight and almost giddy disbelief. From laughter to laughter. And this is the challenge for us this morning to trust that God, to believe this is the God we follow, the God who can bring us from laughter to laughter. Do we believe that? So I want to do three things this morning. The first is to share a story where God has actually brought me from laughter to laughter. The second is to name the places where we're still in the first laughter. And to hopefully let this hope kind of break up some of that really difficult ground. And the last is to talk a little bit about how we live in that space in between when we're not quite there. So as I share this story, I want you to think about that. Do you have stories where God has brought you from laughter to laughter? Where you might have started off in the place of like, that ain't never going to happen. And then suddenly it's there. The first story that came to mind for me was my story with Bristol. When I first walked into Bristol, I had a vision. It was 2008 and I first wandered onto Mill Street and Mill Street had been struggling for quite a while at that point and it had become a pretty broken place. It had been struggling for several decades and then the Great Recession kind of came and gave it this final wallop where if you walked down Mill Street in 2008, half the storefronts were empty. (coughs) The town was really dead, the young people had fled. I mean, you could literally, the day I walked down it, there was not a single other person on the mill street. But that day, something stirred in me, and I had this vision, and I could always kind of see it from day one, right? I could see these storefronts being filled up again, and I could see life and energy and art and music come back from this place, and I could see young people rediscovering this place and filling it with life. And I could see the spirit of God blowing on the dry bones and bringing the whole place back to life. And because of this vision, we church planted here in 2009. And probably in my mind, it probably was going to be maybe 2010, maybe 2011. Everything would turn around, right? (laughs) Maybe 2011, you know, maybe 2012, if it really took a long time. And it didn't happen. And as we kind of struggled along, we, it was just, we found very little enthusiasm in Bristol, and no one was waiting for us, and things were disorganized, and people were apathetic. We tried to run community events, and nobody came, and we tried to stir up energy, and nothing happened. New stores would open on the street and then shut down nine months later, and it just left everybody like more depressed than when it started. By 2011, all that vision I had started—I I had started with—started to turn into that laughter of cynicism. Uh, do you know what I mean? That sense of like, I, I thought this was a calling, but here we are. And as 2011 turned into 2012 and 2013, and this project I would given to my my life to seemed rather pointless. I was there. That surely a child. Mm-hmm. I'll believe it when I see it. And if you've been around Bristol for a while, you know there was a moment when things started to change. then. In 2015, the first of the new businesses kind of began opening in Bristol. And the first Friday, this project we tried and failed several times finally caught, and our coffee shop vision, which it's flopped several times before, finally landed. All of a sudden, I started seeing, like, young people walking around Bristol. It was kind of an odd experience. Where you're like, who are you? And what are you doing here? And how'd you get here? <laughs> I was kind of creepy. <laughs> but Bristol came back to life, right? And somehow, our forgotten little town won a nationwide contest, and new people showed up. And other people that had actually been holding up institutions that I hadn't met. Like, you start meeting people that had kind of been there the whole time, doing amazing stuff. And it was actually just last month. Um, The kids were at my parents' house, and Susan and I were here. And we walked down Mill Street, and it was a Sunday night. It wasn't even a Friday or Saturday night. It was a Sunday night, and everyone was out. Like, the street was just full. Like, the restaurants were full, the bars were full. People were out doing stuff. And we walked into Naked Brewery. And there was live music going on downstairs. And it was like really good music going on. And we walked down into this cool space that was full of people. And we knew like half the people were there. And we had this wonderful night of like connecting with people that were there. And as I walked home, I I laughed. Not the laughter of scoffing or cynicism, but that, that laughter of disbelief on the other side, right? That laughter of like, where am I? And how did this happen? And can you believe this vision actually came to be? For as Sarah says, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. So this doesn't mean there's no more problems in Bristol, right? There's still plenty of work to do, and thriving Mill Street does not necessarily mean thriving families and all that. But if I can remember the laughter of 2013, there's still the laughter of 2023, I think I, I get a little bit of what Sarah had gone through in this process. From laughter to laughter... From the laughter, that's disbelief of cynicism, to the disbelief of joy. And this is the God we worship, and this is the God we know, and this is the God we follow, and this is the God who loves us. The God who can bring us from laughter to laughter. Amen? So before we move on to the hard places, I invite you to just take a second and reflect. Do you have places like this? Stories where God has brought you from laughter to laughter. I invite you to hold those and remember those because they're important for the next part the places where we are still in the first laughter. So it may be easier to think of those. These are hard places, right? And these are places that are often difficult to say out loud because they're places of deep disappointment. And often deep disappointment with God. And Sometimes we don't want to say out loud how hurt we are that the thing that we thought was going to come to be has not come to be. I know even in that story, I wasn't running around telling people in 2013 how disappointed I was, right? Instead, you're walking around being like, no, everything's great, everything's good, everything's moving, everything's supposed to be going like this. And that's sometimes where we get, and that's fine. I understand why we do that, but it also doesn't help us to allow God into that place. And so sometimes we need spaces to name the places where we're in the first laughter and let God come into that. So do you have places like this? Places where if God said, I'm going to come heal that thing, or do that thing, or fulfill that dream, you would laugh. Maybe places where healing hasn't come, where longing has not been met. Places where the brokenness seems so entrenched that the idea that it could be made right seems laughable. Maybe they're simple things like one day you will live debt-free or financial anxiety won't wreck your life. You will be sober or your self-destructiveness won't get the best of you. Marriage or dating won't be a constant source of pain. You won't hate your job. You will have peace with your body. Your sexuality won't be a problem. You will have a fruitful relationship with God. Maybe it's a more general, personal thing like that. Maybe it's a social thing. Maybe it's something particular, a career goal, a life goal, a vision that you've had. What is the promise God could give you that would make you laugh and not in a good way? So oftentimes, again, we want to push those places down and not talk because they're open wounds, but they tend to fester and become a deeper bitterness and cynicism that kind of breaks us in some ways. So I invite you to give those to God. If you can, actually just take a minute right now and give those places to God. Tell God where you're hurt or disappointed. as you think about those things I invite you to receive this that God can bring you from laughter to laughter it's not an immediate cure but let that break up the pain let it break up the bitterness let it break up the hardened ground may it, may it break up the part of you that has given up can bring you from laughter to laughter. <clears throat> Let that wash over you just a bit. God can bring you from laughter to laughter. can let it, let that truth just get a little toe in the door, if nothing else. So that it doesn't slam shut forever. You might not see where it's going or how the story ends. In fact, there's probably a good chance you can't. But I invite you to believe that that God can bring you from laughter to laughter. And if we let this hope sink into us, it doesn't just mean we have something to look forward to, right? It also means the present's not a waste. There's places we are stuck in between. It means God's not asleep at the wheel, which is the constant question of the psalmist, right? Of like, God, where are you? What are you doing? You asleep? And the promise is that no, no, that actually God is at work the whole time. And if we let it, this time between the laughters can actually be a really fruitful time, this winter between the seasons of growth. There can actually be a lot that happens. God hasn't just gone to sleep until spring, right? For many plants, winter is actually essential to grow. You know, winter is when seeds germinate, right? Like I've learned this recently, that acorns won't turn into oak trees. A lot of them won't unless they freeze. It's like necessary. They have to go through the winter in order to grow. Winter can actually produce tremendous creativity in us, right? When we actually get to the place where we feel totally stuck and broken, if you just release that to God, that's actually where tremendous creativity can come. When you stop just trying to push against the thing forever and actually say, God, I'm at my end. Sometimes that's exactly where we need to go to ask new questions, to think in new ways. Maybe we're thinking about the thing wrong, to to pivot in some new way. But I think we actually have to embrace the winter and say, God, this thing, is, it's just not working. And when we get to right at the end of ourselves, that's when we can really grow with God. Winter is when unnecessary things die, right? The space between the laughter is really hard. But just as the plant loses its leaves during winter, sometimes that's when we lose the wrong ambitions. That's when we let go of the sense of ego that isn't right. That's when we let go of the sense of control that we thought we had. Winter can help you clarify your dreams, right? And make sure they're in the purview of God. If our dream is to become a billionaire, right? Winter might be the time to let that go. And go back to the promises of God and see what God has actually called us to. And even if it's a more specific thing, like a passion or a conviction or a specific longing, winter's time to review these things and prune these things and maybe restore these things and maybe let them go. Winter is a time to ask if you're actually pointed at the right things. And maybe the spring God has for you is entirely different than what you've envisioned And then winter, of course, all the good stuff happens under the soil. We know that, right? right? Like all the, all the good things are happening that you can't see. One of the funny things about staying in Bristol as long as I have is meeting people where it's like, oh, you were doing that in 2012?
1: Oh, really? Oh, okay,
0: you were, oh, you guys were holding up the school district. I didn't even know that was going on. Oh, you guys were doing this thing. Like all these things I couldn't see that were actually like germinating. And developing and growing under the soil all that time, that I just was unaware was going on. And yet, without all of those things, where we are today never would have happened. So it's okay to name the pain, but don't stay there. And don't let it turn into bitterness, and don't let it turn into cynicism. Instead, think about winter as a time when, when things can actually be restored and made new. Okay, that said, this wasn't meant to be a sermon about winter. Genesis 21 is a passage about spring. When the baby finally comes. So I want us to end there. Back in 2015, N.T. did an interview with Relevant Magazine, and the title of the article was, When It Appears God, Isn't at Work? And if you want to read the whole thing, it's really good. It's not long. You can look it up. But he was asked this question about how we deal with unanswered prayers, and I loved his response. I've always remembered it. He says that the biblical pattern is not usually an immediate answer to our prayers, Right? that God gives us a hope and a longing and a vision for what he has for us. And then, for whatever reason, it takes a long time. Sometimes days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, sometimes centuries. And some people bail, but others persist and cry out with the psalms, how long, O oh Lord? And then one day, and then one day, out of nowhere, the thing shows up unexpected, deeper, fuller, more beautiful than we could have possibly imagined. The seed finally germinates and grows into something far beyond our dreams and imaginations. This is that moment of Simeon holding the Christ child in the temple, right, and saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations. As Simeon says, I can now die in peace because I've seen the second laughter come. I love that way that N.T.R.A. describes it. It's almost that sense of like, oh, there it is. You guys had that experience? This longing and, and, and striving and toiling and there it is. The kingdom of God has come. Or as Sarah says, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And to all the places that you're stuck in the first laughter, I invite the, you to let this soften you. And if you need to, take it with you this week. God can bring you from laughter to laughter. From the laughter of bitterness to the laughter of joy. And for all the ways that God has done this for you, rejoice. Be glad. And tell story. For the story. For all the ways that you're still in the first laughter, let this good news soften you and thaw you help you to dream again, and to not die the death of disappointment and cynicism. God can bring you from laughter to laughter. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us to sit in this tremendous hope that the first laughter doesn't win. pray, Lord, in all the ways we are stuck in that place of cynicism and bitterness that you would come and meet us there. And Lord, that you would break up the the fallow ground and the seeds could germinate. And that one day there will be that moment where we just go, there it is. It's what I've longed for all this time. The kingdom of God has come. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.